how great is our God? Is that a question or a statement? Uh-huh. Yeah. If it's a question, the answer is he's great. Greater than we can imagine or fathom. If it's a statement, it's a true statement. How great is our God? Let's turn now to Psalm 119. Today we will be in verses 41 through 56. This is actually two sections, the, the Va and Zion uh, section. Remember, this is an acrostic. Each little section is a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, typically, we've been doing one, but the same theme permeates, in fact, permeates this section, these two sections, and the next, but we'll do the next on its own. It, this theme permeates this uh, section. We'll dig into that in just a moment. So if you're able, would you stand with me as I read the word of God? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come upon us with your Holy Spirit and open our eyes. Give us understanding and insight, uh, Lord, beyond what the words of the page are. Speak to our hearts that we may live these things out. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So Psalm 119, verses 41 through 56. May thy loving kindness also come to me, O Lord, thy salvation according to thy word. So I shall have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in thy word. And do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I wait for thine ordinances. So I will keep thy law continually forever and ever. And I will walk at liberty, for I see thy precepts. I will also speak of thy testimonies before kings and shall not be ashamed. And I shall delight in thy commandments, which I love. And I shall lift up my hands to thy commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on thy statutes. Remember thy word to thy servant, in which thou hast made hope, made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that thy word has revived me. The arrogant utterly deride me, yet I do not turn aside from thy law. I have remembered thine ordinances from of old, O Lord, and comfort myself. Burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake thy law. Thy statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. O Lord, I remember thy name in the night and keep thy law. This has become mine that I observe thy precepts. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Last week, we looked at the previous section and the desire of the psalmist to know God, not just know about God, and there is a difference there, and it's one of those things that, that comes upon you suddenly as you read the Word and, 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 and meditate upon the Word and study and grow in the things of Christ. There comes a time where you just don't know about what the Lord says or about what He wants us to know about Him, but you know, begin to know the Lord. Same type of thing when you're... Uh, dating or have a friend, you know about them, you know where they live, you, you know the color of their hair and the color of their eyes, and all of a sudden there is this turn and you know them on a deeper level. Okay, And that's what we want. That's what the psalmist wants here. He wants to know the Lord, not just in an academic sense, but in a personal and intimate way. So in order to achieve that, um, this intimate knowledge with the Lord and in relationship, he asks in the previous section, remember, he asked for spiritual discernment, spiritual discernment. Now, uh, spiritual discernment, and, and I just gave you an example of what he's talking about. 
just before we read the word, I always pray and I always ask that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to what the word says, not just the words on the page. Any, any fool can read the stuff on the page. Okay, but it takes spiritual eyes to understand it. It takes spiritual eyes to apply it. And that only comes when the Lord opens your eyes. That's why a non-believer can, can read the word and go, oh, that's good. That's good ethical stuff. But when a believer comes to the word and the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes, it, it penetrates us. And, and, and we, are, we are bound by it and, and conform our hearts to it in a joyful fashion. It is our delight. It is our meat and drink. And we can't wait to have more of it and more of it and more of it. So in, our, in your personal devotions... Uh, whatever it would be, before you read the word, pray the Lord would open your eyes to it, that his Holy Spirit would do the work that he has promised to do, that the Lord has promised to do. Now look at verses 42 and 46 here as we get going. The psalmist says he's going to trust in the Lord, for I shall have an answer for him who reproaches me. For what? I trust in your word. In verse 46, I will speak of your testimonies before the kings. I shall not be ashamed. It's all about trusting in the word of the Lord, trusting what the Lord shall do. Now, the psalmist, therefore, is also, we can make an assumption here, that he is either presently, or he expects to be taunted for the word. He expects to be reproached because of his life that is lived for the Lord. Uh, and if he ever comes before kings, verse 46, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings. I wonder if Paul... In his times in the New Testament, when he had to speak before, uh, you know, before the court at Caesar, before he had to speak to, uh, uh, it's there at the end of, 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 the, of, of Acts. Um, anybody know that guy? It's not Phineas or Phoebus or that guy at the end of Acts. How about that? Uh, but it's, it's one of those things that where the Lord will give you the words to say. Now, you can't go, remember, proper preparation prevents pitiful poor performance. Okay, proper preparation prevents pitifully poor performance. You can't just go into a situation not prepared in any fashion. Well, I'll just live my life and the Lord will give me the words. He expects you to know his word so that at the right moment, if you have a chance to declare his word, whether it be before your neighbor or before kings, it's in there already. It's tucked away in your brain. It's tucked away in your heart and it will come out in the appropriate way and he will use it in his good time that doesn't mean you will be perfectly articulate that doesn't mean that the words will be uh, just just come flowing out in great poetry it means the words will come out the words will be right and however pitiful you are the lord will use them in in a great fashion i've seen it i've been pitiful i'll be pitiful again and the lord is good because he takes his word and it never returns void so that's what the psalmist is saying here. Now, let's get another example of this. Turn over to Acts chapter 4. Wow. I turned right to Acts 4. I don't know about you. Okay. Uh, but Acts chapter 4. And we'll have another example of that. That was one of the guys Paul was in front of. And then that's not a P name at all, is it? Okay. Uh, chapter 4, verses 23 and following. 23 and following. 
of Acts. Here's another example of, of what we're talking about in praying for the Lord to do a certain work as we declare uh, his word. Verse 23, and when they had been released, now this is uh, Peter and John have been held in prison. And, and when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is thou who dost make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, thy servant, did say, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servants, Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, so all those were gathered against Christ, to do whatever your hand and your purposes predestined them to do. Now remember, this, this takes us off topic a second, but remember, it was the Lord's will that Christ be crushed. We see that in Isaiah. We see this later in the New Testament. It, this was the Lord's will. Did he use the chief priest and the Romans and everybody else? Yes. But what was it? To do whatever your hand, Lord, and your purposes predestined to occur. There's no salvation unless Christ is unless the shedding of the innocent blood. So that's, that's, that's that little passage. Now 29. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that thy bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, while thou dost extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So he's relying this, and, and, and so this is pretty much what is going on back in Psalm 119, verse 46. And, and before we leave here, uh, I want you to look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Peter and James had just been in prison for speaking the word with boldness. So they come together, and they gather the church, they gather this group of believers, and they relate what the Lord has done in the past, and what do they pray for? That we may go right back out and speak the word with boldness. Well, well, then they just come out of prison. Maybe they want to lay low for a while. No, 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 no. They want to go out and speak the word with boldness, that their faith might continue, that it might continue to be manifest in their lives, and that they would have more and more opportunities to declare the things of Christ. Now, back to Psalm 119. Clearly in the context here, in Psalm 119, he's afraid that uh, he might, uh, that his, his, he may spring shame upon uh, and, and, and not fulfill what the Lord has said, that, uh, uh, that his enemies will reproach him, that his enemies are going to come and, and um, come against him because of his stance with the Lord. Uh, so what do we learn from this? We have to learn that today we have to be ready to bear reproach, bear reproach from the world. Okay, now I, I, I was thinking about this a little bit this week, and I thought, gee, Bear reproach from the world. Now we talk about, there's passages in scripture that say expect to be persecuted for your faith. We're not persecuted much in this country. You go to other countries and, and really be persecuted. But, but what is happening is not, not so much persecution, but um, the, the church, the things that we stand upon, the things that, you know, when, when I grew up, and I, we used to call it a conspiracy. You'd hear something at home. 
Then you'd go to school. And what would your teacher say? The same thing that your parents said. And then you'd go to Sunday school, and what would happen? Your Sunday school teacher would say the same thing that your parents said and that the teacher at school said. And then you'd go over to the neighbor's house, and what would their mother say to you? Same thing your mother would say to you. It was a conspiracy. We couldn't get away with anything. You know, I can remember being somewhere I shouldn't have been, and I thought, no, I'll never, no, I'll never find out. And I go home, and my dad very suddenly says, well, what was it like down at Muck's lunch today? Oh, no. <laughs> you know, I'm like, who, who was there? You couldn't go anywhere and not be found out. Couldn't go anywhere. It was a conspiracy. Well, that is on the way out, I think. We are on the way out. We are being more and more alienated from, from those views, the views of right and wrong that have um, guided civilization for thousands of years are being more and more alienated and put out on the fringe. It's not that we're being persecuted, we're just being forced out. Now, we might come back in, it, things cycle back in and out, but it's alienation, it's uh, ostracization. Uh, the believers are on the outs with mainstream society. Now, we've always kind of been on the outs of mainstream society, but at least our views were tolerated, and to a large extent, the morality of Christianity was the, the basis for so much of civilized society. I think we're being more and more pushed out. We are the ones who are no longer defining morality. We're defining how can you actually believe that stuff? That's crazy. And in fact, you're not you're bigoted, you're small-minded and and your view does not need to be in public society. And I'll see I'll show you a good example of that in just a moment. But the church and believers cannot crumble on this onslaught. We have to hold firm to the things of the word. And that's what the psalmist is saying. We, in, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of reproach, I want to hold fast to your word. Now, how can we impact society? Here, here's the great topic for us. How can we take what we know is true and impact society? Maybe we need a kinder and gentler form of Christianity. Maybe we're just too dogmatic. Maybe when we come to the word, it just is too hard. Maybe we should ease up a little bit. Probably not. Maybe we should make it more attractive to non-believers if we, uh, if we just uh, were more inclusive in the gospel, if we just uh, said nicer things and, and, and said, well, God is, is much more uh, left to your decision. Um, uh, now, now, how many of you saw the um, service for Barbara Bush? Did anybody watch some of that? I mean, the place was, was packed, and, and there were good things and bad things um, there. Um, and one of the things was, was he, the pastor kind of hedged on his statement about Barbara Bush's faith. Now, she, he made it clear. She had faith in Jesus Christ, but he said, and for her as a Christian, that was very important. I'm like, no, 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 sorry. That, that's not good enough. It's not just for her as a Christian, her way to God. That is the way to God. And then he wasn't definitive there. Uh, he was nicer and gentler. Now, when I say that, that Christ is the only way to the Lord, because Jesus said, what, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father except for me. That is not nice to everybody who doesn't believe. That puts everybody else on the outs. Yes, it does. But don't blame me. Okay, That's just what the Lord said. Um, so how do we make the gospel more attractive? By the beauty of gracious living. 
by the beauty of gracious living. We make the gospel more attractive by the quality of our lives as we conform it to Scripture, by caring for the least of these, by proclaiming the Word of God as truth. That's how we make the gospel more attractive. We become the instruments to proclaim it, and the Lord does the work in their hearts. Now, if we go out and we don't demonstrate the beauty of grace, if we're bitter, if we're angry, if we are... um, Uh, overly dogmatic to the point that we are alienating people, that doesn't make the gospel attractive. Yes, there's truth there, but it says, what, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within with gentleness and graciousness and respect. That's how we share the gospel. That's how we make it more attractive. We live it out in a gracious fashion. So when believers are reproached by this culture, We have to stand on the word. When we are reproached for the things of Christ, uh, we have to respond in the way that that Christ would respond. We stand firm on the word and we live graciously. So, once again, I'm on the kind of a William Plummer uh, binge here. Let me quote William Plummer. If we suffer reproach and persecution, nothing new has happened to us. David was hunted like a partridge in the mountains by Saul. Shemi cursed David as if he had been the vilest of malefactors. Christ's murderers reviled him, and when he was dying, they taunted him. And the Apostle Paul said in Timothy, We both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God. You and I are either going to trust in the living God and bear reproach as we live out our faith, or we will live out our faith in the shadows and run away and hide. And if somebody comes up to us, we'll be like Peter. Yeah, you're with Christ, aren't you? No, 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 no. Not me. Not me. Look at verse 44, 45. So often in the Christian life, we think that the law is uh, something for the Old Testament, something that we really shouldn't be that much focused on. We need to focus on grace and and having uh, our sins cleansed. Yes, we focus on grace, but we understand the law. Certain aspects of the law are very important. And here the, the psalmist says, for 44, So I will keep your law continually forever and ever. That's, not, that's, that's his aspiration. He's not already done that perfectly, but that's his aspiration. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. Liberty. I will walk in freedom because I keep your law. Now those two things don't always seem like they fit together. How can there be freedom in law When I'm driving down 565, the law constrains me to a certain speed limit. I know I always use that one, but that's important to me because I like to drive that. Uh, But it's a a terrible thing. Why? There's freedom in the law. There's not freedom outside the law. You are free to go and, and, and forget the law, but what happens? You, you know, here's the, um, that silver thing along the highway. Guardrail. That guardrail, sorry, there's a guardrail on the the road. You're free to drive right through it. Your car will go right through it. But what's on the other side of the guardrail? Bad, okay, bad stuff. That's where you die. That's where you go off the road. The law is like the guardrail. It keeps you on the the road. There's freedom within the law. Now, Now think of your own heart. Think of your own heart when you have been bound by some sin and it has been been chewing on you and, and, and you're just you're just oppressed. I mean your your 
your shoulders are down, you're, you're burdened by this sin, and you can't, can't seem to get uh, out of this funk that you're in, you know what? It's probably because you're disobedient to what God says. If you're obedient to what, it, what he says, there is freedom. There is freedom within the law. We were talking in Sunday school. If I go out and kill somebody, I'm, I'm free to go and kill somebody. But it, I'm going to be burdened with the consequences. If I stay within the law, and I, I don't, and we'll just pick on the, the Ten Commandments. If I don't kill somebody, if I don't go out and commit adultery, if I don't go out and steal, if I don't covet, if I keep the Lord first in my life, there is great freedom in there. It's when I circumvent the teachings of the Lord, I think I'm free. And society would say, oh, now you're really free. There it is that you find restraint. There it is that you find the burdens that sin places upon us. There are moments in our lives where, where the law just sets us free because we become obedient and we push sin away and we become obedient to the things of the Lord. Now Matthew Henry wrote, all that love God love his government and love his commandments. And what he means is that those commandments are freedom when they are rightly understood. When we live within the parameters of the Lord, there is freedom. Outside is bondage. The world looks at it and says, no, no. They, they, they flip it around. Oh, you can't live according to the law of God because that's, that's bondage. There's freedom out here. No, no. The, the bondage is out there. The freedom is here. Why? Because the Lord brings into our lives all those things which are good for those who love him or are called according to his purposes. There we find the real freedom for our lives. Look at verse 51. Flip over the page. The arrogant utterly deride me, yet I do not turn aside from thy law. Because I believe in your word, because I hope in your word, I'm going to hold fast to it. Your promises, they, they comfort me. Now they deride me, but I do not, but I do not turn from your law. Is there pressure? Yes. Uh, Paul says what? No, no Christian. Uh, I can't remember what the silver thing is. I can't remember what Paul says. Uh, um, uh, no, uh, you will face nothing except what is common to man. There's no sin, no burden, no temptation that will come upon you that is so great you cannot resist. Okay? You can resist any temptation. That's easy. No. And you walk away. Okay, here's a temptation. No, and you walk away. That, it's that part that's getting that word out of our mouths. Because if it's a temptation to me, that means it's something that I, I think I want to do. Because Satan doesn't tempt us, or my heart is not tempted with anything that I don't actually want to do. So there's the temptation. How can I resist it? The Holy Spirit is already within me as a believer. All I have to do is say no, and I have to walk away. I have to exercise what the Lord has given to me. But they deride me. The psalmist is saying we expect to be jeered at and ridiculed for our religion, but not jeered and ridiculed out of our religion. Expect to be ridiculed for what you believe. Scripture does not expect us to turn away. Scripture gives us everything that we need to fight against that. See, things that we believe that you and that used to seem normal and reasonable in our culture increasingly, according to the view of the world, are unreasonable, are fanatical, 
we're mean, we're narrow, we're backwards, whatever it is. More and more of the culture we find the things that Christians believe and what the Bible has taught are worthy of derision. Let me give you that example now. This is from the New Yorker magazine last week. Now, just in full disclosure, disclosure, I am a Chick-fil-A fan. Okay? Spicy chicken sandwich, near and dear to my heart. This is a, 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 the author in, in, the, in the New Yorker magazine. He writes, New York has taken to Chick-fil-A. One of the Manhattan locations, Fulton Street, estimates that it sells a sandwich every six seconds. Uh, that's a lot of sandwiches. Every six seconds, and the company has announced plans to open as many as a dozen more storefronts in the city. And yet the brand's arrival in the city feels like an infiltration in no small part because of its pervasive Christian traditionalism. Now you understand it. Suddenly there's a little subtle turn about Chick-fil-A. One every six minutes, but it's what? Pervasive Christian traditionalism. He He gives examples. Its headquarters in Atlanta are adorned with Bible verses and a statue of Jesus washing a disciple's feet. Heaven forbid that that's a terrible thing. Okay, heaven forbid. Its stores close on Sundays. Close on Man, who could do that? That's so oppressive. You're not, they're not allowing the employees to work on Sundays. Uh, let me give you an example. Yes, they close on Sundays, but... Um, before Christmas in 2017, thousands were stranded on Atlanta. Was anybody down in Atlanta in the snowstorm, stuck on the road for 24 hours or something? If, if, if you were down there or knew about that, along come the Chick-fil-A people who opened up their restaurants on Sunday and brought food out to the people who were stuck on the interstate. Heaven forbid the crazy people. Okay, After the shootings at the club in Orlando, the Pulse, the gay nightclub, the gay-hating franchise opened up on Sunday to feed all those waiting in line to give blood. Narrow-minded people. Narrow-minded, narrow-minded. Okay, so, its stores close on Sundays. Back to the article. When the first standalone New York location opened in 2015, a throng of protesters appeared. No, they were not chickens saying eating more beef. They were protesting Chick-fil-A. When the location opened in Queens in 2016, Mayor Bill de Blasio proposed a boycott of Chick-fil-A stores in total. The company has a strong emphasis on community, which suggests an ulterior motive. The restaurant's corporate purpose still begins with the words, to glorify God. Must have been a Westminster Catechism guy. And that proselytism thrums below the surface of the Fulton Street restaurant, which has the ersatz homespun ambience of a megachurch. Its arrival in the city augurs worse than a load of manure on the F train. You got that? (laughs) Let me read it again. This is what the guy said, okay? In the New Yorker magazine, its arrival in the city augurs worse than a load of manure on the F train. Defenders of Chick-fil-A point out that the company donates thousands of pounds of food to the New York Common Pantry and that its expansion creates jobs. The more fatalistic will add that hypocrisy is baked or fried into every consumer experience, that unbridled corporate power makes it impossible to bring your wallet in line with your morals. 
Still, there's something especially distasteful about Chick-fil-A, which has sought to portray itself as better than other fast food providers, cleaner, gentler, more ethical, with its poultry slightly healthier than the mystery meat of burgers. Its politics, its decor, and its commercial evangelical messaging are inflected with this suburban piety. That's just Chick-fil-A. <laughs> but the guy, I mean, you can just hear, and, and I, I, it's a long article, and I, I just picked out stuff. But you can hear this, this kind of pagan venom aimed at Chick-fil-A. I mean, they just sell sandwiches. That's a good chicken sandwich. Okay, Are, do they market themselves as better than other fast food providers? Well, of course. Uh, you know, doesn't everybody, uh, Burger King says they're better than everybody else. McDonald's says, no, no, we're the best. Chick-fil-A says they're the best. Hmm. But that's the kind of thing that is common. I mean, who would have thought, I mean, uh, and I didn't, I didn't, this is just from memory, there are colleges who have closed out Chick-fil-A to their campuses because of their stance, the stance of the, um, the Kathy family. The truth, the father, and Dan, the son, because they had the audacity to come out in favor of traditional marriage. My goodness, what a terrible thing. Okay, But people want to close their stores. They want to keep them out. They want to keep out a business that's selling a sandwich every six seconds because it's bad for society. Boy. Well, okay, if we're going to hold fast to the word, we have to expect derision. We have to expect that from society. And it's going to come in subtler forms. And our response needs to be like the psalmist. You may want to deride me, but I'm not letting go of the word. The, the Kathy family has held solid on what is right. And you have to say, I believe in God's word. I'm going to hold to God's word. I'm going to turn to God's word. I'm going to continue to feast on his word. And I'm going to continue to live it out. You might deride me, but you're not going to deride me and, and, and ridicule me out of my faith. You're going to deride me and ridicule me into a deeper faith because it is there in the word that I'm going to feast and find what sustains me. Okay, just a couple more issues here. Verse 54, or 52 first. I have remembered your ordinances from of old. Ah, that's the old word. You know, I, I don't, I, I will give away. I, I like singing, what do we sing today? I've forgotten already. <laughs> hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, hallelujah. I like that. Okay. And part of that is because I grew up singing that. I mean, you remember the red Presbyterian hymnal. Okay, well, I just, that's what I sang growing up. And, and uh, you know, I like I like the modern stuff, but... There's good richness in there. And so he says, thy word of old, the things that you have written, the things that are here for me, I feast on those. Um, you know, when I'm derided, he says, I'm going to turn to the word. I'm going to meditate upon the word. The word is wise. Okay, They will deride me, disparage me, mock me, scorn me. I'm going to hold to the word. And then verse 54. And this might be one of the most beautiful things here of this whole psalm. Thy statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. Songs in the house of my pilgrimage. Now understand what he means here. When, when he talks about a pilgrimage, he's on the way somewhere. 
If we look at the New Testament writings of Paul in the book of Philippians, basically he's on a pilgrimage. Pilgrims make progress, okay? If you read back into John Bunyan and, and Pilgrim's Progress, you know this is not our home. We are on the way to the celestial city. We're on the way somewhere. That is our home. While we're here, we are to make progress. And your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. They are the words that I sing as I go on my way home. They are the words that fill my heart and fill my mind. Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in prison, and there they are. What are they doing down the bottom of the prison while they're chained? They're singing hymns. They're singing praises to God. And, and what kind of things are they singing? They're probably singing Psalm 24 and Psalm 90 and Psalm 46, these great songs of praise to the Lord. And what happens? Well, there's an earthquake. And the doors all open up and the chains fall off. And the jailer comes running out from his bedroom because it's the middle of the night. And according to Roman law, if the prisoners escaped, the jailer had to fulfill their sentence. And that probably meant the jailer was going to be killed. So he pulls out his sword and Paul says, what? Don't worry. We're all still here. Now imagine this. I mean, conditions were pretty rough. And, and the jailer expects them to just to make a beeline right out the door. And he says, here where they are, they're singing praises to their God in the middle of the night. And the earthquake comes and they don't even run away. So what is his response? How might I be saved? How might I be saved? Here you are singing the Lord's songs. Singing his praises. What can I do to be saved? Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. Those who love him take the scriptures. They make them their own through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're called to do. Let's pray. Lord, may your word be our songs in our pilgrimage. Our songs that we sing here in this world as we are on our way to our home. And until that time, Lord, we understand we will be derided. We will be reproached in this world. It might be subtle. It might be open. But whatever it is, Lord, it will not drive us away from you. It must drive us deeper and deeper into your word and into our relationship with you. That we may have such a close intimacy with you that nothing that the world can do to us will affect what it is that we believe. We will feast on what you have for us. We will live it out for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.